My message today is called God's Judgment and the Danger of Judging Others. Taken from the book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, part 1. A friend of mine had a collie dog some time ago. His name was Max. Max was not a mean dog, but he was very protective of the family members. On those rare occasions, Max felt, when he felt duty called on him to protect his family, he did so in this unusual way, very unusual. You see, a Doberman Pinscher or a German Shepherd will likely attack by confronting the intruder face-to-face, snarling, growling, whatever the case may be. Being a collie, though, Max did not attack from the front. His practice was to come up from behind very quickly, okay, without giving any notice whatsoever. And the first indication of his presence was that painful sensation of his teeth sinking into your backside. All right? You know what I'm saying? If you've ever been bitten by a dog, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. In the book of Galatians, though, Paul's approach in his defense of the gospel was that of a Doberman pincher. Okay? At the very outset of the book, he informed his leader, readers that he was greatly upset and was on the attack. In the first two chapters of the book of Romans, Paul's approach is quite different. More like that of our colleague. Here, Paul prepares to attack, but without letting his reader know what is coming. Suddenly, in the first verses of, the, of chapter 2, the teeth of Paul's indictment sink into the reader, catching them completely unprepared. The sins of the Gentiles were obvious, they were even blatant. Um, they were openly practicing immorality, sexual perversion, and other evil stuff, and uh, idol worshiping. Jewish sins were less obvious, but I would say they're more devious. Jewish sins were concealed by this fast talk or fine print. They were often justified as, a, as acts of righteousness. And this is plainly seen in the Gospels where, where our Lord strongly rebuked them, the Jewish leaders, for their hypocrisy. The self-righteousness of the Jews made it extremely difficult to convince them that their sinfulness, even though their sins were, in some cases, greater than those of the Gentiles because of their blindness and because of their hardness of heart. Paul found it necessary to catch the Jews off guard by attacking them from behind, like our calling. Paul's attack is skillfully executed in the book of Romans chapter 1 and 2. Beginning at Romans chapter 1, verse 18, I'm going to give you a brief uh, background to set up our study t- uh, this morning. So be patient with me. Paul set out to show that all men were sinners based upon their rejection of God's revelation through his creation. Chapter 1, verse 18 through 23 in the book of Romans. All men can clearly see some of God's invisible attributes, right? Through observation, his creation. They can see his, his eternal power and his divine nature. Chapter 1, verse 20. Men should respond to this revelation of God's nature by honoring him as God. And by giving him thanks, verse 21, instead of worshiping God and serving him, 
Men rejected his revelation and became corrupt in their thinking and actions, uh, worshiping the creature uh, uh, rather than the creator. Verses 21 through 23 of the book of Romans, first chapter. And as a result, God gave them over to sin as a manifestation of his wrath. God's present wrath can be seen by the corrupt thinking and behavior to which men have been given over due the rejection of his revelation. Chapter 1, verses 24 to 32. Men have been given over to immorality, chapter, verse 24 and 25, to sexual perversion, 26 and 27, to deprived mind and to improper conduct, verses 28 and 32. Those given over by God have become corrupt in both their minds and their morals. And men not only persist in practicing their sins, knowing that their conduct is worthy of death, they even encourage others. In verse 32, so the self-righteous Jew was so blind to his own sin that he failed to recognize that Paul's indictment in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, was a universal indictment. The revelation of God's nature through creation was given to the Gentiles and the Jews. The same sins for which Paul indicted the heathen are also committed by the Jews. And as they read Paul's words, their minds unconsciously replace Paul's general reference, that is, which would have included the Jews with specific references identifying only the Gentiles. And they mistakenly assume that Paul was in perfect agreement with them. And after, Paul, after all, Paul was, was condemning what the Gentiles, right? As sinners. The same sins. And to this they say, amen, because Paul was condemning them. The Gentiles. And they thought, yeah, go after these guys. These guys are bad. Let the Gentiles be condemned. And they deserve it. But little did they expect Paul to turn on them next, indicting them for precisely the same sins. This he does in the second chapter of Romans. This is what he does, Romans chapter 2. And that's where we're going to start this morning. So Romans chapter 2, we begin our text this morning in the second chapter of Romans, verses 1 through 16. And I want us to look at what Jesus attacked more often, more severely, more directly than any other sin. It wasn't adultery. It wasn't taking drugs. It wasn't watching TV. But it was the sin of self-righteousness. Chuck Swindoll, who calls this the deadliest sin in the world. You can find it anywhere, whether you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated, Christian or non-Christian. You can find this, this attitude of judging others, politicians, prostitutes, pimps, popes, priests, and pastors. Everybody is guilty of this sin. You can find it everywhere. It's one sin we tend to make excuse for. I'm not really judging. 
I'm just a fruit inspector. All right? This sin Paul talks about as being a major problem in our lives. Jesus attacked this more often, uh, the sin of self-righteousness, than anything else. No one, number one, no one has a right to judge others. No one. The key to this section is the first verse. It's the word judgment. Say judgment, church. You're awake. Amen. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment. The word judgment does not mean evaluate. It does not mean analyze. It does not mean discriminate or be discerning here. It literally means condemn. It means sentence past a verdict. He's not talking about having discernment here, okay? You who condemn other people, you who judge other people, judging is the favorite pastime of the self-righteous. He says no one has the right to judge other people, and then he, he says only God has the right to judge others. He starts off in the first four verses about the person who thinks, you know what, I'm not so bad, I'm okay. I'm no gross sinner. I'm not messed up. I have a few faults and weaknesses here and there. I do, okay? But I'm all right. He says four things about this this self-righteous person. The first thing he says about this self-righteous person is that, that he accuses others and excuses himself. He accuses others and and excuses himself. Verse 1, you therefore have no, no excuse. You have you who pass judgment on somebody else. For whatever point you judge the others, you are condemning yourself, or you who pass judgment are doing the same thing. Isn't it typical? Isn't it typical about human nature to be unrealistic about ourselves? Everybody else is guilty, but you know what? We're innocent. It's everybody else's fault. The common word for this hypocrisy, which means we're inconsistent. And the worst kind of pride is religious pride, okay? I've got it all together. You don't. These people judge other people, particularly these people in chapter 1, who are really blowing it in, in obvious ways, but to themselves they say, you know what, I'm not so bad. I'm not. Throughout the first chapter of Romans, Paul consistently referred to sinful humanity as they and them. Remember those two words, they and them. Nice, safe, third-person pronoun, okay? That keeps the accusing pointed finger, you know, elsewhere. Not here, but elsewhere. They are without without excuse, chapter 1, verse 20. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him, verse 21 of of Romans 1. They became futile. They become fools in verse 22. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, verse 25 of Romans 1. God gave them over, verses 24 through 28 of chapter 1. They have, this is just something that Paul suddenly does something very unusual here. What he does is he spun that pronoun that I just mentioned. He spun it a full 180 degrees from the outward third person to the inward pointing second person, which is you. That's what he does. Paul says to the Jewish hypocrites, every one of you who judges is without excuse. Chapter 2. Verse 1a of Romans. Notice the connection to the Gentiles being without excuse. 
Paul says, for when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same. 1B. Though the outward manifestation may be different, the Jews practice the same kind of evils they criticize in the Gentiles. And they also stand indefensible before God. And how do we excuse our sin? How do we do that? He says, you're not really without excuse, but you try to. This is how you do it. We label our own sin. We label our own sin. We, we don't gossip. We're sharing a concern. I'm not critical. I'm discerning. I'm not lazy. I'm mellow. We relabel our sin. I'm not negative. I'm realistic. I'm not uh, unreliable. I'm very flexible. We take what we judge in other people, but when it comes to ourselves, we say, it's not wrong. It's just our character. It's just the way I am. How many respectable do you know do that? Look to your neighbor. Yeah. All right. The other thing we do to excuse our sin, we conveniently forget our own sin. It's out the door. We don't remember it, right? The person who thinks he has a clear conscience just has a poor memory. All right? A lot of times we think there's nothing in our life, but we may not have thought enough about it. At first, the reader might object to Paul's blanket indictment of his or her character. Me? Moi? Practice the same things? I'm not guilty of Paul's you know, list of, of, of crimes here. But let me ask you a question. Take your time and be honest with me this morning. Actually, it's between you and the Lord this morning, not me. How do you, how do you determine who is good and who is bad? How do you determine that, who is good or bad? Now, if you're like most people, including me, you have in your unconscious mind at least three moral categories in which you place people. Some are without question undeniably bad, okay? You got Adolf Hitler, he's bad, right? Stalin, he's messed up. James, uh, uh, J Charles Manson, Judas Iscariot, Mussolini, Nero, all of these guys are bad. Nearly everyone would agree. These people are evil. Then there are a few undeniably good people, like, like the late uh, Mother Teresa, She's often held up as the, as the modern standard of good. Another would be with Billy Graham. Some might say, well, I'm no Mother Teresa, I'm no Billy Graham, but I'm a pretty decent person. Then there's a broad middle category containing the masses of somewhat good yet sometimes bad and yet to be determined people. That's where we usually place ourselves isn't it? And within that category, we mentally rank people in order of observable goodness. Some are better than others, clearly. Now, who do you suppose is the measuring rod here? Huh? Be honest, remember, it's just between you and the Lord right now. You guess correctly, yourself. When driving on the freeway, People who go slower than you, who, they're jerks. They're idiots. 
Whoever drives faster are clearly menace to society. Those are people who drive faster. Where's the cops? Give me the cops here, man. All right, these guys whacked. When people are asked whether they're going to heaven or hell, many will answer, you know what? I'm not perfect, but I never killed anybody. So I guess I'm a pretty good, pretty good, good person, right? Alcoholics often look down at, at, at drug addicts, while drug addicts ridicule the drunks. Even in prison, murderers, rapists, thieves have no tolerance for a child molester and have no guilt about, or any qualms about mistreating them or even killing them in prison. Such honor among criminals, right? With Paul, we all agree that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice evil, right? But he reminds us that the same judgment that we call down upon others falls upon us as well. That's the part that makes us squirm. We all want justice for the world, right? But each carry within us a standard of righteousness based on our own perceived goodness. And that leads us to our second characteristics of a self-righteous person. He measures other people by the wrong standard. He measures other people by the wrong standard. He compares others to himself. I'm the arbitrary standard. I, I'm better than so-and-so. We contrast that with the way God judges because God judges based on the truth. The problem is we are blind to the truth. All of us have blind spots, areas of weakness we don't see. I don't see my own weaknesses at times. You don't see your own weaknesses. Many times we don't see where we're at fault, but we only see where other people are at fault. It's ironic, but we tend to judge in other people what we dislike in ourselves. If you have a problem with pride, you're going to be very quick to judge people who are full of it, full of pride. If you're lazy, you'll be very quick to judge people who are really lazy. It's in our nature. When we start to judge things, we have the tendency to judge the things we dislike about ourselves the most. When you see someone violently reacting to a certain sin, it may be that they have fear of it or they, have, they are guilty of it. We measure by the wrong standards and tend to play God. We know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God's judgment reflects the reality of, of the situation. Romans 2, verse 2. Now, again, Paul says that God's judgment is based on the truth, which I just said. God's judgment is not based on external appearances or, or, or some other standard. God's judgment is always just. Is this. He thinks that judging others puts him in a better position. He thinks that judging others puts him in a better position. Verse 3, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same thing, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? You who judge other people, do you think that's going to win you points with God? Do you think that's going to make it less serious for you? 
that by judging others will escape a, a judgment ourselves? The reason we like to judge others because it makes us feel better. It makes us feel superior, like we're not so bad. There's some faulty logic here, church. Let's say you and I owe some money to the same man. I'm in debt $20 million, and you're in debt of $10 million. And you say, since you're more debt than I am, therefore I'm free from the debt. Does that make sense? No. His sin is worse than mine. Does that negate your own sin? No. We think by judging others, we're put in a better position that we're going to escape judgment. God doesn't grade on the curve, church. That's not, he doesn't do that. God's judgment allows for no exceptions. Verse 3. Do you think any, of, any one of you who judges those who do, not, who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Human nature gravitates to, to this defense. I'm the exception here, Right? And that was certainly the tendency of the Jews who had been given certain privileges. Again, Paul says, no, no, no. God does not grade on a curve. You are a religious person. Instead, you're, those who are irreligious, you're a part of this particular, particular party. No matter what happens, if you're a Republican, Democrat, or whatever, you're going to be judged. If you're of another ethnicity rather than another, you're going to be judged the same way. Everybody's the same, right? There's no exceptions regarding the reality of the standards of God's righteous judgment. As long as you think you are an exception to God's judgment, you will never repent and turn to Jesus. And why would you? You have no need to, right? God's judgment means you should not presume on his kindness. Verse 4, God's judgment means you should not presume on his kindness, but turn to him in repentance. So you see, God's kindness means to lead a person to a life-changing repentance. All right? However, many presume on God's kindness, never repent, yet believing that God will simply say, at the last days of judgment, okay, you can come right in, no problem. Hey, come on down. Other base their assurance on this emotional experience in the past, or some religious ritual. But they have never been made a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul does not want us to presume on God's grace because he wants to see people saved. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 7. Titus 3, verse 4 and 7. In, in God's kindness, he makes us aware of our, of our sin. And, and our responsibility is to then to turn to him in repentance and faith, right? Do not presume on God's kindness, but receive his, his transforming grace through this genuine repentance. The fourth characteristic of the self-righteous person is he misinterprets God's blessing on his life. He misinterprets God's blessing on his life. Verse 4. Or, you, or do, you, do you show contempt? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Amen. 
A self-righteous person shows contempt. All right? In Greek, what he's really saying here is that you treat it lightly. Have a low regard for it. Many people take it for granted. Many people presume on God's goodness. They take it for granted. It's the attitude of everything is going great. Therefore, God must think I'm great also. Everything is going smooth in my life. Excellent. Therefore, I must be in the graces of God. He must think I'm special, a chosen person. The self-righteous person thinks he deserves God's blessing. He doesn't realize it's all of God's grace, and if God gave him what he deserved, he wouldn't even be here. He says we misinterpret God's blessing. We think that since everything is going great, therefore, I must be without sin, right? But the Bible teaches that God's blesses our life even when there is sin. Grace, he doesn't, it's because of grace, it's all about, about grace, it's amazing that God knows everything about you and about me, and yet he's patient and he's loving, right? Grace. How many times has God had a legitimate reason to can you? All right? Or myself? Many a times. It's, you know, it's a lot of times. He's saying that our attitude should be one knowing that we didn't get what we deserved. All right? We ought not to underestimate God's goodness or, or take it lightly. Look at the results of being judgmental. Verse 5. Look at the verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteousness, judgment, will be what? Revealed. The result of this, of this self-righteous attitude of I'm okay and everybody else is not. All we're doing is storing up wrath. One day, the dam is going to break. If in life, you can store up one of two things, wrath or treasure in heaven. Matthew chapter 6. What are you storing up, church? What are you storing up this morning? Store up the goodness of God. You know, God hates judgmental people. Why? Why is it that, that people, uh, that, why is it that the people Jesus got the most upset at, at were, the, were, the, were the Pharisees and the, and the Pharisees, but not the adulterous people. He was much more ticked off with the Pharisees. It's because they were judgmental, and they destroyed the dignity of other people. That's what they did. Being judgmental is playing God. Paul says only God has a right to judge. When I judge somebody, uh, uh, I'm playing what? God. That's why cursing is wrong. For a Christian. When you say, God damn you, you are pronouncing a judgment. You're being a judge. Or when you say, damn it, that is a judgment. God says that nobody has a right to judge except God. That's why we're not to swear to, to damn a person. It, it, it's, it's to condemn a person. That's what it means. God's judgment will result in God's just just wrath on the unrepentant. Verse 5. Paul says if you, go, uh, if you go on in unrepentance, 
living as if you have no need to repent, then you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteousness judgment is going to be revealed at that time. Time is running short. It's running short. And soon it will be too late to repent for those who have presumed on God's grace but never truly been converted, transformed by the God's grace Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Who are you? Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. And to finish up this morning, when is it wrong to judge? When is it wrong to judge? It's wrong to judge when you practice the same sin. It's wrong to judge when you practice the same sin. Therefore, you have no excuse Oh man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? When is it wrong to judge? When it blinds you to your own faults. When it blinds you to your own faults. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 and 3. Matthew chapter 7, 1 and 3. Do not what? What does it say? Judge. That's a command from the mouth of Jesus. Or you will be judged. In the same way you judge others, you will be judged. The measure you use, it will be measured to you. If, you, if you're critical of other people, People are going to be critical of you in the same degree. Right back to you. I'm right? going to slap you upside the head. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Jesus was using Hebrew humor here. All right? Humor. Exaggeration. When he told this, I'm sure the disciples, they were laughing because this is what happened. Why do you worry about this big old speck of sawdust in your neighbor's eyeball when you have this big old honking plank in your eye? Big sucker in your eye. You're hearing everybody. Hey, how's it going there? Oh, you're hearing everybody. Ah. All right. You're out there walking around and the plank is hitting everybody upside the head too. It's the difference between nitpicking and log pulling here, okay? We are great Spect analyzers. That's what we are. Don't do that. It's wrong to judge others when, it's, when it blinds you to your own faults. That, the results are you will reap what? What you sow. And the result of judging another person are you are also going to be judged. Now, it's wrong to judge when you draw conclusions based on outward appearance. It's wrong to judge when you draw conclusions based on outward appearance. See my ponytail? People look at me weird at the store. Kind of weird. When I talk to them, they change their mind. Ponytails are good, right? I like ponytails. Stop judging by mere appearance and make a right judgment. John chapter 7, I believe verse 24. Yeah. When you look at a person and judge them by their hair, Clothes, style, style, color, the zits in their face, okay? It doesn't matter. When you judge by outward appearance, what is that? That's wrong. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, look, God looks 
at the what? Heart. But man looks at the what? Outward appearance. When you judge according to the outward appearance, it's wrong. It's wrong to judge when you condemn somebody, when you condemn somebody else before hearing the facts. All right? When you condemn somebody before hearing the facts. John chapter 7, verse 51. John 7, 51. Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what's he doing? No, no. Get the facts first. Even if your conclusion proves accurate, ultimately you're wrong anyways because you judge without getting what? The facts. Get the facts. How many times do we make judgments based on heresy? There's always more than one side of the story. There's your side, my side, and there's God's side. Don't judge before hearing the facts. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Colossians 2, 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. You are wrong when you judge. A person spiritually on the basis of external observance. Okay, the warning includes two areas here, the, the diet and days. Regarding their being judged about diet, there were uh, eventually those who were saying that the way to God and spiritual fullness would be to enhance if the Colossian believers returned to this dietary laws of the Old Testament. Let's go back to that. There are also spiritual reasons for this distinction between foods were meant to basically familiarize God's people with the, the fact of, of, of purity and impurity. And so what it did is simulate the conscience in everyday life. Okay? But when Jesus came along, guess what he did? Those dietary laws, pff, he took them out, man. He abolished them. Out the door you go. Jesus said to the Pharisees who were offended by his uh, liberating eating habits, are you still so dull? Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them, don't you see that whenever, whenever, whenever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. Matthew chapter 15, verse 16 through 18, yeah. In saying this, Jesus, what he did was he declared the foods all clean. All right, all clean. You can have enchiladas, you can have beans, whatever. May, Paul made this conclusion. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So, the New Testament scriptures are unified in telling us that all food and drink are lawful. Amen? And of course, dietary principles are a good idea, I think. Uh, you can, one thing about that though, you can eat too many Twinkies, all right? And you'll no longer be Twinkle Toes, okay? You have too many Twinkies, no Twinkle Toes. We're not to judge others or allow anyone to pass religious judgment on us regarding food or drink in that verse. The same applies to the days. The Jews had all kinds of special festivals, Leviticus 25 and their new moon celebration, Isaiah 1, chapter 13, on their Sabbaths, Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 9 and 11, when Christ came, he fulfilled them all. We no longer celebrate the Sabbath because you know what? We worship on the Lord's day, amen. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, that's the first day of the week. That's today, Sunday. 
1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. The day which commemorates the resurrection, book of John, verse 20. It's up on the, up on the screen. But you know what? Paul does not say, forbid the faithful to keep special days and special diets. Rather, he says, do not let anyone judge you in these things. Colossians 2.16. You know what? This is a great uh, feeling in, in, in what we Christians can do, right? We can keep days and diets and forget them, but he rejects the right to anyone to judge or to compel another to comply with his own preferences. Later, he says, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what it is all about. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Romans 14, 17. Now, these are external standards. Christians will always disagree on the obvious. There's always arguments there. But all we, and we all have our own list of do's and don'ts, right? Especially the don'ts when it comes to um, laws what we think. Certain areas of the country, it doesn't, a woman is not permitted to wear makeup, all right? No makeup for this ladies in certain parts of the country. In another area, it's okay to, okay to wear makeup, but you can't play cards, okay? You, you can't wear makeup, but you can't play cards. In another area, it's okay to play cards, but you can't go dancing, right? In some places, it's okay to dance, but you can't smoke. You get all these different opinions. The last thing here, James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. James 4, 11, 12. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but setting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But you who are, but you who are you to judge your neighbor. What do, when do you become the self-appointed judge of life? They serve the Lord, not you. When you judge other Christians, you're speaking against them, slandering them. He says it's wrong to judge people when it, uh, when it causes you to slander another believer. And it's wrong to judge when it causes you to speak evil against or slander another believer. And a slander means ruin the reputation. That's what that means. Something to take note here. This is a fine line. A fine line we have to face here. There are times in Scripture we are called to be discerning. Okay? And there are at least four times we're called to judge. Not with this kind of condemning attitude, but with, with an attitude of, of value towards the person. There's a fine line. We are to hate sin, but what? Love the sinner. Pastor talked about this last week. We are to hate wrong, but love the people that are involved in it. It gives us uh, some qualifiers here on the way we're supposed to speak to other Christians. You speak in ways that build them up and not you. You speak in ways according to their needs, not your needs. Speak to edify, to encourage, to strengthen. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. And we should speak positively to other people. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Paul was continually being questioned about his motives. If you do anything in your life, guess what? You're going to have your motives questioned also. There were people in different churches, even churches that Paul had started, that questioned his motives. Ego, money, 
uh, power struggle, um, uh, empire building. He was continuously having his motives questioned. Paul said, I don't care if you, if you judge me or not because I'm not accountable to you. I'm only accountable to God. That's what he says. Then he says, don't judge people's motives. We don't have any right to question or try to figure out other people's motives. We can't even figure out our own, right? Most of the time, we don't even know why we do what we do, much less know why other people do what they do. Many times our motives are so vague and hazy and mixed that we don't even know ourselves why we're doing what we're doing. Only God knows the ultimate motives of our heart. Paul says, says this, if you can't even figure out your own motives, don't waste your time trying to judge other people's motives. Number two, only God has the right to judge others. Only God has the right to judge others. Then he goes on and uses this as an opportunity to talk about who does have the right to judge. He says there's only one person who has the right to judge. Who's that? That's God. Verses 6 through 16. He tells us when God will judge people, how God will judge people, and what, we, when, and what we'll be judged for. That's what it says. And finally, finally this. I said finally a couple of times, haven't I? Okay, I'm almost there. Look at the time. When will God judge people? This will take place, verse 16, this will take place on the day, referring to the day of judgment, that is, when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. God's judgment reaches, reaches to the secrets of our hearts. Paul says God judges what people have kept secret. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews 4, 12. God's judgment goes all the way to your inner being, right into your soul. Verse 5, it says you're, going, you're storing up wrath for the day of God's wrath. Ultimately, the day of accounting. The day when all of us are going to give an account of ourselves before God at the throne. That date has been set. It's already God's in his calendar. It will not be moved. It will not be postponed. And you know what? It's scary, but it's also awesome. The thought to think that one day I will stand before God and give an account for every word that I ever said, for every thought that I ever had, for every action that I ever taken. One day I will stand before God and I will be accountable to him. And the Bible teaches that nobody, nobody will be able to say, God, it wasn't fair. And why? Verse 6, and this is what it says, why? God, God's been patient and kind, amen, and understanding. Patient, kind, and understanding. Thank you, Jesus. All this, all this time. He's been patient for a long time, church. And so will and so when will God judge people? On that day, that day of judgment. Amen? Amen. That's all I have to say about that. Amen? This morning, 